I'm Anna Marie Cox. I am a political columnist and I host a podcast for Crooked Media called With Friends Like These. I saw the first Star Wars movie five times in the theater. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts, and I just created a course about the end of the world and what comes after them. This is Space the Nation, where we combine our wonkiness to produce a tesseract of wonkiness <laughs> by analyzing science fiction through the lens of foreign policy, politics, and international relations theory. And we are starting the season by looking at The Expanse Season 5. We covered Season 4 for the Sci-Fi Channel's Churn podcast, which you can probably find somewhere in the ether. <laughs> if you want to support us in this podcast, you can visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash space the nation. And if you want to weigh in on what book or movie or TV show we do next, you can leave a message there or hit us up on Twitter at underscore space the nation. Now, Dan, shall we begin? <laughs> we shall. With just a brief note, which is uh, uh, the title of this episode, I believe, is Down and Out, which might be the most banal title for an expanse uh episode that i have seen like you know particularly after galgamela and some of the other ones in the titles of the expanse books when i looked at this i actually wondered if i'd clicked on a different show because it is so basic had the same reaction like this is not clever <laughs> at all it's just and really this is not a slight you know the, the, when galgamela yeah. is the standard for what you're trying to do in terms of obscure references you are inevitably going to come down a few pegs from that but still i was i was honestly it's serviceable yes. it's 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 and, it's good it's fine but it, anyway yes it's so. also accurate let us talk about Down and Out. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's start with the recap of what happens in terms of the plot. Uh, we first start with the drummer faction, which is what it's now called. Essentially, uh, Kamina and the other crewmates in her faction debate what Marco Anaris did, which, if just as recall, hurled three asteroids at Earth um, and killed Fred Johnson and something happened on Mars. It would be safe to say that the crew is not super enthusiastic about what Marco did, but on the other hand, they're not all that upset either, and indeed, uh, in the conversation, it becomes clear that there is an awful lot of resentment targeted towards the Inners and towards Earth in particular. Uh, there is a profound debate about what the effect of the attack will be on the Belters and on their own faction. We will get to that debate uh, a little bit later. The important sort of plot-moving element of this is that Drummer announces that Marco has pinged her requesting a meet, and she says they will meet. Um, so that's pretty much all that happens even before the credits in terms, and it's the last we see of Drummer the entire episode. I was impressed by the range of reactions that the actors were able to show in Kamina's crew. Mm -hmm. I think it's there's some subtlety there. And there isn't any outright celebration, although they do talk about other people celebrating. Yes, uh, indeed. That was the most explicit, far and away, most explicit sort of 9-11 reference in the entire episode. and and the Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't get that, but yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Wow. The, the producers have been very clear. <laughs> the, 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 the writers of The Expanse have been very yeah. clear. This is their sort of 9-11 arc, as it were. But when they start talking about, I think, was it mm -hmm. Palace Station and one other station where they like, heard cheering and so forth? They're dancing, they're in, dancing the in the streets or something. I mean, I mean, they, they're not streets. They're hallways, whatever it is that would be the right, equivalent. Right, but that was, of, that was about as on 
nose a 9-11 reference as you could possibly get in terms of debates about, you know, what was the reaction. And of course, it should be what was interesting is that in, in the actual 9-11, while I believe there were a few reports about this, particularly in the Middle East of celebration, by and large, there really wasn't. Um, and certainly, you know, like claims made by Donald Trump, for example, that there were, you know, people celebrating on the rooftops of New Jersey were complete myths. What is interesting in right. the, what I did like about this was that in some ways, the conversation was among the belters rather than, you know, a conversation among earthers saying, I hear they were protesting, you know, off in this station, which, of course, this is the last thing they care about at the current moment. Yeah, there's something kind of nice about also making it a reference that it might not be happening. We've, we talked about how the expanse kind of... Um shortcuts its way around conspiracy theories and fake media being a thing. But surely it is human nature to believe bad things about people. Yes, yes. And speaking of bad things happening to people, uh, we move now to Earth. We are still in the penitentiary uh, where Amos was visiting Clarissa. And I apologize if I say peaches at any point in this episode because I Amos keeps calling Clarissa Peaches. They are trapped uh, at least 10 floors below ground. Um, however, Amos, Clarissa, uh, the head guard Rona, and some other guards manage to try to make their way to the surface by using a, a maintenance uh, ladder by relying on a, another prisoner named Konachek uh, and his Bane-like uh, mods, uh, namely uh, his ability you know, he clearly appears to have super strength in some ways. And since it's been a long time since uh, the reduction of his mods, the meds that negate them, he's able to, you know, pull a lot of metal out. And uh, all of them are uh, able to climb up to the surface with the exception of one guard. Soon after they get to the surface, Konachek is going to Konachek. He uh, caps one guard um, and uh, tries to shoot another. He comes very close to throwing Amos down the hole that they had just escaped from. Uh, however, Rona um, cleverly manages to use uh, a gun to uh, wound Konachek, and then Amos uh, does a nice pro wrestling move and just throws him back into the, the hole. At which point, uh, you know, Rona, who we learn, in, you know, through the arc of the episode, is divorced but has a kid and wants desperately to know where the kid is because essentially when they get to the surface, the entire structure of the prison has been blown to smithereens. You know, Amos tells Rona to go find her son. Amos and Peaches uh, are left on their own to uh, to navigate. I have two comments on that, like, as a scene. Mm -hmm. One is that I love that we are reminded that Amos is a genuinely good mechanic. <laughs> mm -hmm. we, we, we haven't seen that so far in this season. It comes up a little bit in other seasons, but he is, like, he, he really is good at this, yeah. you know? Like, like Naomi's very good at her job. So he figures out, like, how to use the ladder that's behind the wall right even rona sort of, like, um, I, I, you, rona, I thought, you could tell like was actually legitimately impressed that, that amos had that idea yeah and how to and how yeah. to get at it too like he knew where to shoot yeah. in order to get at that ladder i also was amused by the cheerful sociopath <laughs> they don't have a lot of comic book characters yes that, no that is a good way of putting it this was <laughs> this was like hey let's just Add a sprinkling of MCU, you know, uh, humor to the expanse, and I and I have to say it worked, you know, because this is a one-off character. Yeah, you know, we don't see him for that much, but like he actually had a personality, and I did love the was it when, when he said so, what's happening, or like you know, like the very first time we see him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was he was amusing, and when he died, we don't yes. care. That's so it's nice to have a comic book character that you don't have to feel anything for. Right. 
I would be um, worried if the expanse went too I'll much in that direction, this. but this is a fine, fine one-off. Yes. Yes. This is a good use of a comic book character. But speaking of caring for people, mm-hmm. I don't think this will come up much in our theme, so I'll just throw it in now, which is um, Amos touching people. Oh. Like, he touches Clarissa. He almost touches Rona. You can kind of see him gesture towards her when she's crying. You know, like he, he in his body language is, is that of an empathetic person, both to Clarissa and to, I guess the way to put it is, is that among it throughout this entire episode, this is not something you normally say, but Amos might be the most empathetic character in that entire sequence. Yeah, you're right. Yes. I think that is true. And and I really saw it when Clarissa injures her hand yeah. and he goes to make a sling right. for her. And there's something very delicate about the way that he tends yeah. to her. The other um, the other unusual thing about this, because th- this was what stood out to me, is that in order to to, to get out of the their cell, you know, the Rona originally says, OK, Amos, you can come out, but there's no way the prisoner is coming out. Um, and Amos basically says, look, she has to go wherever I go. And then she, he does something that I don't think I've ever seen him do. And it was completely surprising to me, which is he mentions, you know, I have connections in high places. And this is, I don't mean this in a, in a critical way. This is about as out of character as I would have expected Amos. This is not something I would ever have expected Amos to do. And it, it demonstrates to some extent the degree to which he obviously cares for Clarissa and, and the degree to which he's willing to do things in order to, to take care of her. Also, before we leave this scene, I will say I am mildly troubled by the idea that they left prisoners behind. Yes. So, no, no, this was... We shall just... We can move on from that. No, no, no. But it's a detail that they they usually... I feel like they usually pay attention to details like that. And and that was No, and the the clear impression you have is that, like, at least on the med block that they were at, there had to have been other prisoners that were left alive because they only got rid of Konachek. And and I had, you know, it, it didn't seem like there was that much damage down in that particular floor so that was a little disturbing i agree like it would have been nice if like at the very end like rona's like oh look here's the master switch to let people out <laughs> where's that damn deus a machina when you need it expanse you know yes exactly. you know here it is now everyone can climb up the ladder that we climbed out of and have a chance to survive in this you know hellscape yes. but no they went they they didn't do that moving speaking on of escaping, take us to mars uh let us move to mars um oh. you like how i'm doing this uh you know so uh mm. when we laughed left alex and bobby uh they were in the uh razorback they are uh, tracking um babbage and the bar keith they discover that uh the bar keith and uh, some mrc and destroyers are headed to the Hungaria Group in the belt. Uh, and just props for the name Hungaria Group, because really, I, I, I assumed it was a sovereign wealth fund or something. Like It's, a, it's, a, it's like an awesome-sounding name, no matter what. They, uh, they see the Belters ships as well. The Bar Keith moves away, and they realize that essentially whatever transaction has taken place is literally the MRC and destroyers. So they have given them to the Belters. The, uh, the Bar Keith moves on its way, but clearly the now Belter ships uh, ping uh, the Razorback. There is a high-speed pursuit, and this episode ends, in fact, uh, with Alex, I believe, dumping the Razorback's core in an effort to uh, detonate a missile and still survive. We are in a cliffhanger with that storyline. Yes. And I don't... We shall move on. I think on. we should just move on. I, not a, there's not a ton no. here. I mean, we, it's mostly sort of... Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, agreed. Agree. Like, I think that that's um, setting up pieces, which they do sometimes. Um, there's a tiny bit of drama, but I'm pretty sure both of them are going to survive. Like, again, can't be positive 100%, but. Absolutely agree. We probably are going to yes. see them again. So, so right. let us move from the uh, the observation of the transfer of Martian ships to the Belters to the actual Free Navy uh, of Marco Anaris. It is now clear through multiple hints dropped throughout this entire episode uh, that the Free Navy consists of ex-Martian ships. Among other things, the uh, Marco's crew complains about the Martian provisions on the ship that they are currently on. Needless to say, uh, there, there's slight trouble in Marco Town, um, which is to say that you know Marco and his uh, Marco and Naomi squabble. Marco and his crew squabble over how Marco is treating Naomi. Sin and Naomi quarrel over the fact that Naomi was abducted. Naomi and Corral uh, also squabble, uh, but Corral lets drop a hint that the Rossi is probably wired to blow uh, in much the same way that Naomi uh, helped the uh, Augustine Guerrera blow um, so many years earlier. Philip does the same thing, uh, implying that that he helped save Naomi from a certain death, which again implies that the Rossi was uh, geared to blow. Um, Philip says this... I thought they were kind of heavy-handed with this, I have to say. So, I... This is where... a, A little, like... How do I put this? This is honestly, I think, a feature now of how we in the 21st century watch television, which is I agree on the one hand that it might have been a little heavy handed if you were paying close attention to the show. If you are watching the show and also checking your phone or checking your social media and so forth, I'm going to point out that this is one of the interesting challenges that sometimes they need to hammer, you know, things a little bit louder in order to be able to notice those things. But yeah. okay, just going to. Point taken. uh, I will also point out, however, that not only do they have like three different people drop hints, (laughs) (laughs) there is also the ominous music as the Rossi starts to like leave Tycho. Fair enough. (laughs) Yes. No, no, no. It's, 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 and also, by the way, there is also just common sense, which is to say that we know that Sakai, who is the saboteur on Tycho Station, was refitting the Rossi. So it does seem awfully damn likely that she would have sabotaged the ship. You know, I like my only plot note for this part of the story mm-hmm. is they should check the entire station. <laughs> Like, they should just assume that everything is wired to blow. Yeah, uh, you know, you know it, it clearly, I, I, there I, are a few bugs in Tycho Station. You might want to actually bring some reliable people in and go through, like, you know, an actual debugging process. So let's finish up with a free yes. Navy. Anyway, uh, Philip tells this uh, to Naomi after uh, Naomi had attempted to stab Marco. So despite all of her various things being frustrated, she eventually knocks in unconscious, briefly gets a hold of his phone, calls Holden, um, and sends a warning message. Phone. What? <laughs> phone. Oh, phone, yes. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. It looks like, it's one of the things I actually like about The Expanse is that those damn things look to me like smartphones. But, you know, grabs. Gra- okay. I just think yeah. it's funny. Grabs his Grabs his calm, that's good. Grabs sin's calm. I'm not sure. Calls Holden, you know, in real time, says, for God's sakes, I've been kidnapped by Marco and don't start the Rossi because it'll probably blow, which is a nice segue to Tycho in which um, right before that, Bull and Holden are attempting to interrogate Sakai and not really getting a lot out of Sakai. They are not good at interrogating. 
They're really, really bad at this, uh, which is something we will talk about a little bit later. However, uh, Holden does inform Sakai that that Monica had captured what the Zamaya's course uh, was, and so they will go out on the Rossi to pursue it. Uh, however, just as Holden uh, is about to fire up the Rossi with Bull piloting and a new crew, Naomi's message comes in, they power down, and so... You know, Holden now at least knows that Naomi is being held captive by Marco and that really someone needs to do some debugging of the Rossi. Yes, for sure. That seems like we've covered all of the chess pieces on the board. And so now let's talk chess. (laughs) Dan, is there any international relations theory in this episode? The answer is yes. There are two forms of international relations theory in this episode. Um, the first, uh, the first is, and really this comes up in, in the first five minutes, is the discussion among drummers faction of essentially do they bandwagon with Marco or do they balance against Marco? So, I mean, we, we talked about this in the last podcast but essentially, it is far from guaranteed that all of the Belters are automatically going to sympathize with Marco Anaris uh, and what he has done. That even if they actually have some sympathy to what he has done, they won't necessarily be keen about possible retribution or possible deleterious consequences from this. And you can see that in, in some ways the, the crew actually talks about the three possible international relations responses to this. One is bandwagoning, which is they <laughs> decide to meet with Marco and join his faction or so on and so forth. And I will say from the end of the conversation, it's apparently, apparently, apparently yeah, I'm not saying that's going to happen. Apparently decide. Drummer is at least open to the idea or at least tells the crew that she is open to the idea. Right. And that's what, and, and you call it bandwagoning, yes. which is. Helpful, um, <laughs> the opposite of that, which would be to balance, which is one of the things that I, I'm kind of curious about um, that hasn't happened yet is we don't have an official OPA response to any of this. Now, admittedly, Fred Johnson's been killed, but presumably there's Anderson Dawes. There's others, you know, in the OP that, that presumably can speak authoritatively for the OPA. If Drummer was to ally with with them to fight against uh, the Free Navy, that would be a balancing option. But the other thing that, that was actually discussed, which is uh, in some ways the most common response is what's called buck passing, which is you don't do anything. You hide. You become Switzerland. You you become as neutral as possible. You let everyone else fight it out and you gain strength. And indeed, they actually talk about this in the form of we obviously can't engage in a pirateering right now because the inners are going to be very hyper aware of uh, and vigilant uh, with respect to the belt. And so therefore, it might make some sense to just sort of lay low for a while. And we don't know how the drummer faction is going to go out, but I did like that they actually had the conversation and you see all of these three different points of view articulated. I think it's funny to me that you have laid out the three options that are possible when there is a attack, right? That's sort of one nation attacks another nation. What, What does the third, fourth, fifth nation do? And what IR seems to have done is just named the things you can do. (laughs) Well, okay, to be fair, all right, IR IR would have a there's Those are always, those are the three options, yes. Those are the three options. I will say this, IR IR theory, (laughs) if you're asking what would IR theory predict, this in part depends on the theory, but to be fair. Oh, here we go. Empirically, you would expect to see the most likely outcome would probably be buck passing given the size of the drummer faction. It's pretty minute. The next likely option would be balancing. Bandwagoning would be extremely rare. Um, The drummer faction might be so small that they actually decide they have no choice 
but to bandwagon with Marco. But, you know, so in terms of probability, to be fair, I would say that buck passing would be the most likely option, given what we are seeing. Another thing I wanted to ask you IR-wise about this particular scenario is something you said, which is you talked about Drummer joining the OPA, like meaning Fred Johnson, Anderson Dawes. You mean like the moderate side of the OPA? Are you assuming that there's like two different things now? We have the OPA, which used to be a radical organization. Mm -hmm. And then we have the Free Navy, who thinks of itself as representing the OPA, but is in fact too radical to really represent I have a feeling there's some terrorism parallels here, the, by the, the way. The obvious parallel would be... Yes. Well, the, the better parallel, I guess I would say, is Palestine. It's the PLO versus Hamas. That's the the, the one that immediately comes right. to mind, yep. which is the PLO, or the Palestinian Authority, you know, are former terrorists that are then actually given some governance responsibilities and conduct those governance responsibilities, sometimes in partnership... Formerly oppressed right. peoples. But but they, like... <laughs> currently oppressed. Currently uh. oppressed, but the Pal- but. You know, the Palestine Authority's security forces work in cooperation with Israel, which is viewed as the enemy Mm -hmm. by a large number of Palestinians. And there are valid reasons for why they do that, which is the Palestinian Authority wants to build a state. Um, And so, you know, there's a recognition that that is the way to go. Hamas, um, you know, uh, does not see things that way. They are a more radical faction. And this is the thing. When you tend to get governance responsibilities, you almost automatically moderate. And when I talk about the OPA... You're right. They're formerly a lot of them are former terrorists, but not all of them. You know, in that sense, it's kind of like the IRA and that there was a political wing and, the, and, a, and a military wing. But, you know, as I said, when we started this season, the OPA does have governance responsibilities, not just on Tycho, but in the belt in terms of Medina Station and what have you. And so it'll be interesting to see whether there is any response um, or whether everyone just sort of flocks to the free Navy. I just thought of another thing that happens when... um radicals, disruptive uh, wings of organizations come into power. Mm -hmm. They can also just say, fuck governance for four years, let's say, (laughs) and just go golfing. They can just not govern and then stay stay pretty radical, stay pretty extreme that way, you know? And in, in a weird way, keep their party together because... They have refused to moderate. I just, just this is a theory I'm, I'm working on. It's an on interesting here. theory. I'm sure you just pulled it out of thin air. I'm sure there's no actual uh, <laughs> real world example that you could have drawn upon. I will say this: this can work if, and this gives rise to a, a question I'll I'll ask you later. But basically, it it works if the population cares more about identity than anything else. In other words, if they don't care about material needs mm-hmm. and wants. If they don't care about governance functioning, if all they care about is there is a belter in charge now and that belter recognizes that belters are awesome and I'm a belter, if if like that's all their their first, second and third concern, then you're right. That'll work because in some ways feeding someone's, you know, uh, reassurance of identity matters more at times than material wants and needs. And in this hypothetical example that I'm thinking of, <laughs> it is true that the person who's refusing to govern is instead feeding identity politics yes. just over and over and over. God help me. There is a term. So, I can, no, I there's a know. term I can throw out. I'm going to do it because I know the author, okay. Jennifer Mitson. Yes. She's a great IR scholar. She described this once as ontological security, 
which is the idea that by knowing who the other is, by knowing who the enemy is, it also secures you in terms of knowing who you are. And there is a degree to which if that's what the Belters care about the most, then Marco might actually succeed, even if he can't govern worth a damn. But there is one other IR thing I would say that this episode brings up, which is, for lack of a better way of putting it, grand strategy is one thing and implementation is another. So it is worth pointing out that uh, <laughs> Marco, again, deserves you know, serious recognition. Indeed, they actually say this in the episode that he has launched, in some ways, the most impressive and coordinated terrorist attacks in the history of the Expanse. You know, simultaneously being able... In the history, in the history of humanity. Of humanity yeah. In the history of humanity. I'm sorry, humanity. in the Expanse's history of humanity, yes. Yeah. But the point is that, yes, he managed to wipe out both Earth and would look like, you know, decapitate the OPA. This, These are significant victories for Marco. But that said, and this ties into something we talked about in the last episode... This is, you know, interstellar relations is not just a game in which you say checkmate and the game ends. The game continues to go on. And so, you know, the very fact that we see Marco's crew starting to squabble, uh, the fact that there are still people on Earth who are presumably going to respond to this. We don't see Avasarala in this episode, but I can assume that uh, things will be happening on Luna. And, you know, the fact that as I indicated before, it, it strikes me that, that maybe Mars might not be completely on board with the Marco Anaris plan. All of this suggests that he has thought through a brilliant plan, but I don't know if he has thought through what happens after that plan. I agree. I think Marco has a blind spot when it comes to his ability to charm people. Like another radical thinker, I, I, I'm just imagining... That he believes he can, through sheer force of personality, sway people to do what he wants. Right. And it, I think it's a, a sign of his his utter... It, it is, in a way, that same uh, sensibility is what allows him to be a mass murderer. True. and actually, It's a form of like sociopathy, yeah. I think. But I also just realized this ties into a different kind of international relations conversation, which is there's actually been a lot of... of oh, please. There's been a lot of research in the last decade over what I would just describe as basically the role that individual leaders play. That a lot of international relations theory mm -hmm. prior to the turn of the century was focused on what we would consider structural systemic factors in the system or domestic politics factors that would explain why states do what they do. What is often called the first image or the role of the individuals is uh, tended to be minimized. But it would be safe to say that there's been a, a lot of research over the last 10 years, which is timed, interestingly enough, to real-world events, that suggest, hey, you know what? The backgrounds of individual leaders can matter and it can affect very much, you know, the, the course of various forms of foreign policy. And this also suggests a danger for Marco because the fact that he has pulled off this audacious, audacious high-risk plan is going to lead to him being supremely confident that every successive move will work out just as well. Mm. Um, and this mm -hmm. is... Like if you were an underdog in an election and you pulled off... If you were just a total underdog in an election and like everyone was saying there was a 99% chance that the other person was mm -hmm. going to win and then you wind up winning, yep. you would probably ha make assumptions that things are just going to work and we maybe wouldn't have to govern so much. Yes, and indeed to the point where like if you lost in the successive election, you would conclude that was not an actual real loss that in fact just all the experts are wrong again. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how this plays out with Marco. I, you know, I, I don't know if there's any place we could look for 
clues <laughs> to how it might work out in the real world. So who knows? Yeah. Dan, is there any other kind of IR theory that 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 pops out at no, you? No, no. I think we uh, from this. I episode? think we successfully uh, tapped the IR vein dry. Um, <laughs> you know, but but don't worry. This show. Oh, it's never dry. It's never dry, dry, yes. it's never yeah, dry it's Dan. It's 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 just. Is it worth mining at this particular? No, I moment? think we've. I think I, we've. I think we've. We've we, mined all we can mine. All right, Dan. Since we're done with theory, uh, let's get into you know the feels. Not just the feels, also the literary side of the expanse, the themes, the critiques it is making, and so on. Yes. Um, so I, I think in terms of, I, I, by the way, I think I, we should call this now feels and themes and quotes. But um, <laughs> so the the first set of quotes that uh, struck both of us, I think, could be best be titled as family squabbles. Which is to say that that one of the through lines throughout this episode is basically either real or constructed families working some shit out. That is hindsight. You cannot live backward. Feel. Feel. Whatever you feel. Huh? You can let those feelings rule you. You don't see the change when you're with him. So in all three of these quotes, it's about, you know, you're, you're seeing families in change, for lack of a better way of putting it, or people in change, and whether or not the other members of the family are cool with that. Uh, so, you know, in the case of Oksana and Drummer, I think Oksana clearly wants Drummer to see herself now as part of the Drummer faction, as part of, you know, their small, very polyamorous family, which, let's face it, sounds kind of cool. But nonetheless, Drummer clearly feels some ties to Fred Johnson, to the OPA, to her former life. And it'll be interesting to see whether she is able to let go of that. In the case of, of Marco and Philip, it's it's Marco doing what Marco does, which is the thing that I find fascinating about Marco as a character is that he is undeniably charismatic. He is undeniably eloquent in the moment. But if you actually read what he says on paper, it's fucking contradictory and it drives me around the goddamn bend. Uh, <laughs> like other so sociopathic it, leaders, really. Right. And again, I, I say this in all praise of Keon Alexander, the actor who does a fantastic job with Marco. But like, he's so goddamn charismatic that I just want to slap people and be like, he's not actually making sense. The idea of Marco saying, feel whatever you feel, but don't let these things rule you when Marco's entire life has been driven by this is just bullshit. I'm sorry. I getting had to get that out of my system. And then, of course, in, uh, in some ways, the most touching aspect of this is the idea that you know that Naomi doesn't really know Philip and as Sin acknowledges Philip has changed but it's the kind of change that's tectonic that you don't notice when you're living with someone but clearly Naomi has noticed I think there is a very smooth segue from your seeing family squabbles play out in all these different situations and the thing mm-hmm. that I felt was really on on top of mind um, which is this idea of biology and destiny and nature and nurture, which of course family yes. is a part of. No, that that ties in. And it's not a coincidence, by the way, that all three of these conversations are essentially among belters. Right. And the belters are the people who have the most um, physical identification with their like 
ideological identification, right? Like exactly, they have yeah. a they're, the ties between who they are physically, who they are politically, who they are familiarly, familiarly mm-hmm. are really connected in a way that they aren't necessarily connected for inners, except for the mods in Clarissa and in Tiny, which I think mm-hmm. is a, a perhaps unintentional echo of those things. But I went to grad school in the '90s, and postmodernism <laughs> says if you find themes and symbols in a text, it doesn't have to be that the author meant to put them there. They can be legitimate points and, you know, uh, journeys for a reader, even if the author did not intend that specifically. So I think on on the one hand, that is an awesome point. And on the other hand, that is literally triggering triggering PTSD in me (laughs) from like my college English classes when I had to listen to deconstructionist talk because uh, <laughs> that was all the rage back then. It but, was. Uh, it was all the rage. And that was the main thing was like, it doesn't matter what the author meant. Yeah. <laughs> like, just go for it. Author intent. <laughs> Please. Who is the author? Sorry for anyone who's like in their 40s um, and went to graduate school. But I, I will sort of see your quotes and then um, raise you my quotes, which I think a few of them get to this biological piece a little more Mm -hmm. directly. I agree. If it hadn't been Marco, it would have been someone else. Walking on an Urta station for an Urta, and an Urta, and an Urta. You think that's what Bertolotta wanted? To be your favorite pet? Boy has a mind of his own. You tried to live on Illis, and your body failed like most betters would. And the ones who can adapt, the children won't be better anymore. So, all of these quotes relate to this idea of the belter body being destiny, really, and, and biology being destiny. If it hadn't been Marco, it would have been someone else. Right, mm-hmm. because we belters, this is this was going to be a thing we were going to do, right? It's in our mm-hmm. blood or something. I wanted to ask you, actually, we're just going to dip mm-hmm. into IR for a second. Yeah. <laughs> really, like, yeah. So this, I have to say, this is the interesting. Let me put it this way: I'm enough of a social constructivist that I actually reacted to these points in the in the, the episode by thinking. This is just a little bit essentialist. And and we saw this No, I'm not kidding because and also I think this Yeah, I agree. That's another way com- that's another way that biology and destiny can be used as a right. weapon, right? It's like right. it turns and, into and, racism and, and stereotyping and essentialism. And, and I think the best way we saw this was in the ways in which the Belters talked about Fred Johnson. In which, like, it first in the first conversation uh, with with drummer, someone said very nice things about Fred for an Earther, um, and even Sakai said that he she liked Fred, you know, but he was an Earther. She, she literally says, "I think he's a tourist," mm-hmm. which I think would not be the way I would describe Fred Johnson, given what we know, you know, of his his past. But the fact that that the Belters could not necessarily accept someone who was, I believe, in the leadership in the OPA as a real Belter. It, it rubbed me the wrong way, even though, again, props to the expanse, because in some ways, to be fair, there is a biological element to being a belter. Um, no, I mean, no, no, in I mean, some ways, there literally is a biological you know, element to it. That's what defined belters. And that's right. the sin quote there is like, yeah. you tried to live on illness and your body couldn't handle it. You are one of us. And, and if you yeah. try to be one of them, you are a traitor. 
because your child right. and this, will be an inner. And this came through in last season's whole, all the the Illus arc, you know, in terms of the Belters trying to to live on Illus, which it looks like many of them did succeed. And I think it explains Marco's paranoia about the uh, the the ring planets because if Belters were actually able to live in places with free air and free sky, as it were, um, then suddenly belt the belt as a culture is going to be dramatically transformed. And that represents a threat to Marco's ontological security and clearly a lot of the other belters as well. And so there's a genuine debate to be had to be had here about what makes someone a belter and how do you respond to things that threaten, you know, that, you know, that represent an existential threat in theory to the belt. I'm doing, I'm going to do my postmodern thing for a bit again, yep. which is to point out the other Go places ahead. this turns up besides the mods. Yep. There's the biometrically mm-hmm. keyed guns, mm-hmm. which is a biology destiny thing. And then there's the guard mm-hmm. complaining about his leg as they're climbing the ladder. And then there is something that may have actually been intentional, which is when um, Alex and Bobby are shooting away um, and going into the hard burn. Alex right, says, they're, if they're it's feeling a bel- the juice, as it were. Yeah. And Alex says, if it's a belter crew, we can hold a hard burn longer because their bodies yeah. are literally more sensitive to gravity than those of right. people who are raised in a gravity well. Yeah. And I wanted, I, basically, there's a bunch of stuff that I was like, thinking about putting into a big montage, but I pulled back because I'm no longer in graduate school. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I'll just go back to That's a, certain- a great poster. I, you need to have a poster saying, and then I pulled back because I'm no longer in graduate school. And I, before we leave those set of quotes, though, the the boy has a mind of his own is mm-hmm. a part of biology destiny, you know, because I believe that Marco is being sarcastic when he says that. Maybe not fully intentionally sarcastic. So but he's sort of saying, to- like, he has a bounty of his own, but look, he agrees with me. You know, like, yeah. it's a, it is in a conversation full of asshole moves. Like, that yes. is the one that made me furious because it's such a, it's such a mindfuck, basically. A gaslighting, so too. Is- he's gaslighting her. Like, Oh, yeah. He's gaslighting everyone. I mean, like, even Sin is like, I was actually shocked that Sin actually directly challenges Marco because, I mean, in some ways... This is an unusual thing to do, you know, just in the form of a, a hierarchical command structure or whatever. But the fact is, Sin says, you don't have to play with her like that. Like, you know, and it presumably might foreshadow what Sin does or Sin's feelings about uh, the treatment of Naomi. To go to Philip, though, the one question I had, and this was maybe I wasn't watching carefully enough. You know, in the scene in which Naomi has taken a knife and is going to or attempting to wound Marco, but Philip grabs her puts her in the the elevator and puts her back into her, you know, says, just get out of here, we're busy. Did Philip know that Naomi was about to stab him or not? It's I unclear to me. I was also unclear on that. I think yeah. not. I think not either because, it, you know, this this ties into one of the, the stray thoughts we will talk about a little bit later because otherwise it doesn't make any sense what Philip does. But it was weird to me because... It seemed pretty obvious what she was about to do. So, like, it was it was a weird moment. I agree. And I want to get into Naomi a little bit more in our next section, which we have dubbed the Space Debris, which is the odds and ends <laughs> and bits and bobs that we still want to talk about but don't fit in anywhere else. Uh, let's just go to Naomi. Um, so, first of all, props to Dominique Tipper for her portrayal, mm-hmm. which... 
I'm going to say isn't subtle, but doesn't, shouldn't be, shouldn't be subtle. Yeah. <laughs> she, she should be like, this is what's going on. What's happening to her is awful. She should, in yeah. fact, be emotionally wrecked. And I, in fact, I think she acknowledged the fact that in the, in the sort of bonus uh, discussion, she acknowledged that this was incredibly, you know, she was crying pretty much at every take. Oh, wow. Yeah, it shows. Like, I was actually going to say something about that, that her makeup or whatever, like, you can tell it's, it is very much looks like the kind of um, under eyeshadows you get when you've been crying a lot. Mm. Um, so maybe it was not makeup. Uh, she's so, so beautiful. God damn it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this does leave. I, so I have a question for you, which is the first part of the episode, when we first see Naomi, Marco talks about Naomi not eating. And I, for a brief second, I thought, is Naomi going on a hunger strike? Because that actually would have been interesting and would have been an interesting way that Naomi could have actually exercised power over Marco. But it becomes clear in the rest of the episode, no, she's not doing a hunger strike. That is not what is happening because she then sneaks into the the, uh, the galley and gets some of her food on her own, which is fine. I'm not sure. Like, I'm, it's very easy for me in the comfort of my own home to say, yeah, you, someone else go on a hunger strike. But I, I thought that might have been an interesting gambit. As a reader of the books. <laughs> there you go. Let me attempt to do the only mildly spoiled thing and okay. say there are reasons why a prisoner might intentionally eat well and Ooh. exercise other kinds of powers. Okay, that sounds fine. I look forward to seeing those puns play out uh, later in the, in the in the season. I mean, it is um, an also an option for any for anyone in prison, right? Like you can yeah. either choose to exercise power by killing yourself um, mm-hmm. or attempting to kill yourself, which is a form of power in this mm-hmm. particular situation. Like, or yeah. you can get in shape for other things that might happen. Sure enough, which actually. Which is actually a lovely segue to something else we, I think, both keyed on in this episode, which is I, for lack of a way of putting it, I kind of like the Expanses version of prisons and interrogations, which is not to say that they're fantastic, but like, how to put this, you know, there's a very small scene in the opening of Tycho where um, Bull essentially berates a belter for, you know, a guard for beating up Sakai, implying that's not what we do, uh, you know, as opposed to a sort of traditional cop episode in which beating up the, you know, you know, beating up the suspect would be a way of presumably trying to interrogate or get information from them. So they have this expansive view of civil rights, but also people are still cruel to each other and there yes. are the tools to be cruel to each other. The Expanse first book opens with Avasa- Avasarela, and I believe the season opens with her torturing someone. The, first, using, the, the pilot episode of the show also opens up right, with torture. Right, using the Earth's gravity, gravity to right. torture a belter, mm-hmm. right? Using yeah. their physical characteristics against them. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's just, I mean, it's just that mean, you know, I mean, human nature is human nature. We can expand rights and still be dicks, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> People don't necessarily change. No, that that's that's true. Right. I, I guess the way... Oh, the wait, way wait, let me finish it, my thought. Let me finish oh, my thought with this because... Yeah. When you said I like how interrogations go in the in the world of the expanse, I thought of like, well, they got truth serum. They used it on Alex. So clearly truth serum exists, but my thought was, and I'm the reason I went on about that ex- expansive haha, view of human rights is I'm guessing it might be against civil rights to use yes. truth serum on a suspect. That's what I, I, should, would- I mean. 
No, no, no. I would suspect. I mean, in some ways, if you think body integrity is a const is a is a fundamental right, it would totally make sense that they wouldn't do it. And by the way, to be clear, it's not so much that I I want to say that I like the interrogation because, as I said, it turns out Bull and Holden suck at this, and yeah. I cannot oh, yeah. stress enough how bad they are at it. What I like, though, in some ways, is that it's it was. For lack of a better way of putting it, it's an inversion of the traditional cop narratives that we are used to on television in which the cops inevitably are, are, you know, in order to get information out of a, you know, suspect or what have you, physically intimidate them or what. And it works always. That's also the thing. And it works, yes. Yes. It's sort of, it's the 24 logic uh, for lack of, you know, for lack of a way of putting it. And what I liked in this was the notion of that would just be idiotic and it's not going to work. And so we have to come up with something else. Now that said. But speaking of not working. Yes. Speaking of not working. Bull and Holden. Let's talk about that and how terrible they are at this. Um, Yes. I think I wouldn't expect Holden to be good at it, but I almost like laughed at Stephen Strait. Like when he's like got his like face on and he's like marching around, like that is not his natural way of being. Right. Like Holden trying to be a tough guy. Like it doesn't work. Like all of his negotiations that have been successful have never come out of power. Right. They've always come out of diplomacy. Like he's never, that is his skill. He's, he's good at that. He's good at making connections between people. It comes out of empathy, which is, by the way, how you successfully interrogate people. You know, if there is anything we have learned over the last 20 years of the war on terror is that torture doesn't really work. Enhanced interrogation techniques, whatever you want to call them, don't really work. The The most amount of intel that has generally been extracted from captured terrorists have come from people who were able to form a bond with the uh, the captive. And, and, you know, develop empathy and then get them to talk. And we see none of that. You know, while we don't see Sakai tortured, we also don't see anything pr- promoting empathy. And indeed, we actually see the opposite of that. When Holden talks about Sakai saying, you had a good job, you know, what are you complaining about? It was like, that is the absolute worst thing you could have said in that moment. Like, Sakai will shut down as a result of that, you I mean, dumbass. he's understandably upset. But <laughs> he's pissed. Yes. No. And to be fair, this is not his normal yeah. job. But like you know, and, and and it's a big deal. Like his planet, you know, like home, yes. like all of his family, his weird, you know, polyamory family with all the moms and dads. I want to talk about Bull for just a second in the bad at this part yes. of of the conversation and how he's bad at it too, which is sort of a surprise. Like yeah. he plays such a tough guy, like an. Whatever would actually it's the difference between being an asshole and being like a, a tough guy, mm. which I actually think is supposed to be Bull's character in a sense. Like he's introduced as a really rough person. Yeah. Right. He's abrasive. Yeah. But we are seeing more and more, at least I think I don't think he's a double agent of some kind. Right. No. Yeah. That he's he's his. I mean, I don't want to say his heart is in the right place. That sounds too sappy. But he's loyal to Fred Johnson. Yes. And that that is going to be his sort of pole star for now. The way I would put it is he's not being a dick for being a dick's sake, you know, in the sense of it, it. while he is clearly rough around the edges, he is using that roughness as a way to try to he, he's goal directed in some ways. The one last point I would say about about this whole scene, which is correct me if I'm wrong. The one way which I think maybe Sakai will actually talk at some point in the future was the one moment where she might have cracked was when she realized that Holden was about to go out on the Rossi and clearly she knew what was going to happen to the Rossi and she said, wait, and like 
then they pause and then she just sort of goes back into, you know, tough ass uh, free Navy person again. But it seemed to me, and I would like confirmation from you, that she had a real moment of genuine doubt about the fact that Holden might be marching off to his death. I think that's because she cares about Naomi. Oh. Honestly, I think that um, there's another kind of like, you know, biology, blood, family tie. That could be it. Okay. That would for her mean more than a connection to an earther, right? Like clearly she, she enabled the murder of millions of people, millions of earthers. So it's hard for me to believe that she'd think Holden was special, but she knows that Naomi loves him. And I think she is, you know, beholden to beholden. No, no. I like your, your interpretation is much better and far more consistent with, with what has happened. So that is fine. Um, but this leads to one last question I had, uh, which is about Marco's ship and security on Marco's ship, which seems super <laughs> cash. I, I, there's just no other way to put this. I mean, like, you know, I, I weirdly, you know, Marco and his crew seem awfully confident in the technological, you know, checks and balances that are going to somehow constrain Naomi, not thinking, what if she just grabs a knife and stabs someone? So... I'm tempted to go back to my incredibly, you know, hypothetical and not at all based in reality parallel um, Mm -hmm. about security being lax. Yes. (laughs) But in this hypothetical that is in no way real, the reason security is lax is because the people are incompetent and 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 self-absorbed really bad combination to be incompetent and self-absorbed. I think on Marco's ship, belters are portrayed as being pretty much universally competent, let's say. Like, I mean, I don't... It would be racist for me to say, yeah, that is a fact for all of them, but they're portrayed as being hard workers, as being like very tech-savvy, being like, that's their culture, right? So... Yeah, maybe undisciplined would be the other thing you would potentially add to that. That is perhaps, I think, what's going on here is that they yeah. just don't know how to do this. Yes, right? that would be a fair... And in some ways, that's part of what we're, I assume we're going to be seeing for the next couple episodes in some ways. The turn, which is suddenly... Mar- Again, this is, you know, Marco, you might argue, achieved a catastrophic success, as it were, which is <laughs> now he actually has to be responsible for a lot of things. And it's not something he or more particularly his crew is necessarily used to. I have a couple more things that are such small pieces of space debris, like you you wouldn't be able to see them with a naked eye. There is the uh, just insight I feel like I had about the belter predilection towards like patches and graffiti and tattoos, uh, which Mm -hmm. is is everywhere, right? Like that is, it's a little bit space culture, but the belters just are just every, everything's covered with signs. Yeah. And it might be interesting because it also highlights the, the well, I think one thing that that does well in this episode is it shows the degree to which Marco and his crew are out of context because they have this Martian ship and there is no graffiti. There's no, there's right. nothing there. And indeed, they don't even in some cases know how to work it. Sin needs help from Naomi in order to figure out, you know, how to, to do something. And and that that's one of the things, I think that's that's a good point. They personalize spaces, let's say. Also, it's yeah. not so much – like in the inside of a ship, I wouldn't think there'd be graffiti, but they would personalize it somehow. It would be right. theirs. It would be, you know, modified to, to suit them. 
as they do kind of, right? Uh, And I wondered if this is culturally something that goes back to the fact that communication is hard in a vacuum, like you don't get facial expressions, Um, tone is probably hard to read. So you grow Mm -hmm. up in a culture where people are just really like having to like tell you who they are, you know? Like really (laughs) just broadcast it. I'm sorry. Is my As a Jewish American, me? you know, coming from a culture in which we are very demonstrative, perhaps, you know, we talk with our hands and so on and so forth. I have no idea of what you speak. Um, but <laughs> yeah, they're also but yes. great amount, hand signals and stuff. But I don't know. That's just something I, I, I something I thought about because it is yeah. really a part of their culture to like personalize and and have you know all these tattoos that mean things. As a tattooed person, you know, I'm very much I understand why you would do that. They still have microwaves. <laughs> yes, Surely someone would have invented a better way to heat things up. Surely. Like, microwaves are terrible. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Hold on. I don't think microwaves are terrible. Like, I, I... Oh, but you... It, coffee! That's Because that's yes. actually a perfect segue to the other thing, which is my, what microwaves do. I actually read up on this recently because I was like, why does microwave coffee taste so bad? You destroy mm-hmm. some of the things in it when you microwave in it. Like you destroy oh, some of the, the particles that give it its rounded flavor and instead you get something that tastes burnt. So huh. just when I saw Naomi use a microwave, part of me was like, okay, number one, they still have microwaves, which is kind of funny. Like on the mm-hmm. Star Trek Enterprise, they had something else. Replicators. You know, they yeah, just they were replicators. called replicators. Yeah. And they came out warm, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of interesting to me uh, that microwaves still exist. And then there's when she looks longingly at the coffee machine. Yes. I, I laughed a little, I have to say. like <laughs> You laughed? I did. I mean, it's a very, I understand she's thinking of Jim and, and, yeah. and it's very sweet and he's a coffee drinker. So, you know. But it was a little like she looked at it like it was Holden. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me put it this way. I actually, as things go, I thought that was actually a nice, subtle move. Because one of the problems of this season, you can argue, is that Holden and Naomi have been on completely different tracks. And they haven't communicated with each other. Indeed, this episode has a, a moment where Holden is trying to get in touch with Naomi because everything awful has happened. Indeed, this should have been, by the way, a a sort of real red flag for him that there was something wrong because presumably this is one of those moments. It's like a nine 11 moment when yeah. everyone is trying to get in touch with each other saying, are you safe? I'm safe. And so on and so forth. I would assume there is some social media version of, you know, 20, the expanse version of this where you can indicate you are safe, you know, from, from something. And so the fact that, that Naomi had not answered him, I, I wish they had added a slight line of dialogue of why maybe Holden thought Naomi hadn't answered, but like at least it pointed out the ties between the two of them. Yes. I think we've covered about all there is to cover, perhaps more than should be covered. Uh, <laughs> a note to listeners, we are working on just really condensing our points. <laughs> but before we go, I want to ask you as the non-reader of the series, you know, what you think about where we are and what kind of expectations and questions you might have the question i have i think goes back to something we talked about in terms of of belter identity which is whether or not they care about material wants or is it really about something you know more ideological because the, the question that keeps popping up to me is just how integrated is this system's economy you know marco has just destroyed presumably the largest economy 
in the system. And I keep thinking that if we were in a, you know, if we're in a globalized world economy right now, for example, and suddenly China ceased to exist, despite all of the rivalry between the United States and China, that would not necessarily be good for you know, the rest of the global economy. And and I keep kept thinking about, like, you know, in, in 2008 in particular, when the U.S. first starts having the problem of the financial crisis, when Lehman goes bankrupt, you heard a lot of loose talk from other countries saying, well, you know what, we're decoupled from the United States. We don't have to worry about that. And then it turned out that they were wrong. And so I'm kind of <laughs> curious what the effect will be on the Belt's economy, which I know is an extremely wonky point, and I'm not sure the extent that it will be talked about but i do kind of wonder like what happens to the belt if you know one of the primary sources of demand for what they do goes poof i think it's not entirely just something a wonk would be interested in to to interrogate the economic outcome here Mm -hmm. because economy is also what drives people's motivations Right. Like you were just saying, like, is it is money the, the end all be all for belters is 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 control of resources what they really want? Is that going to mm. be enough for them? So I think, yeah. yeah, I think the question of like how much um, the whole entire like universe's economy goes splat because right. you blew up the central node of it. Yeah. Like, I think that's a yeah. Like, I, I hope they engage with that. If they don't engage with that, I feel like that would be weird. But. Mm-hmm. I have faith. I have faith. Do you have anything else? No, I was going to ask you, as a reader of the books, do you have, you know, questions or expectations about what's coming up? I'm getting a little anxious um, to see my my heroes in action. Uh, There's Mm. been a lot of setting up. And to go by what happened in the books, we're going to get some, you know, razzle-dazzle Raider of the Lost Ark kind of swashbuckling at some point. Ooh. Ooh, okay. I, and I use that I use that as a touch point only cuz like that's what I could think of when I thought of swashbuckling. Like being chased, getting away from people, going through t- tough environments, like a lot of like physical tension. There's a couple plot lines they could pull from that are just stereotypically exciting basically. Like I, I that as you're reading, you can exciting. imagine the movie being made, as it were. Or the, the, yeah, the TV, and you're t- like page turning, and what's going to happen? How are they going to get out of this jam? Yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. So I'm kind of like, come on, guys. Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> like, I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to see it. Uh, and that is, I think, the only thing I can safely say. I am mad at them for not giving us all the episodes at once. Although you and I would have to space them out anyway. Yes. But it is a very bingeable series. Like, let's let's just this season. That. Well, I I would let me put it this way: this season in particular, like I I had no problem last with with season four, watching an episode you know at a time and and not necessarily feeling like I had to watch the next one. This season, though, particularly what we're going through now, yeah, I keep like I will be very eager for the next one to drop and watch and talk with you about, which seems like a good time to close. And uh, just as a reminder, if you want to support us monetarily, you don't have to. Certainly, we've been talking about economics a lot, but like, obviously, this is also designed to be uh, free entertainment. But if you want, and we would certainly appreciate it, if you want to, you can find us at Patreon at patreon.com slash Space the Nation. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at uh, at underscore Space the Nation. 
We'd like to thank our engineer, Karen, and also Liam, who does social media for us, both of whom are working at rates far below their market value because they feel so strongly about us, Dan. It's sort of like the belters. Like they're making a choice Aww. to like have solidarity with us rather than make a lot of money, which, which they could do. And also I want to thank our patrons so far. I continue to be blown away by the fact that anyone else cares as much as we do. <laughs> <laughs> and is as interested as we are. Uh, so thank you. Just thank you for listening. Thank you very much. And uh, until next time, keep this channel open for more. <laughs>